Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Thomas Curran. Thomas is a social psychologist and a professor at the London School of Economics. His new book is called The Perfection Trap, Embracing the Power of Good Enough. In it, he explores how perfectionism manifests, why it's on the rise, and its impact on us individually and collectively. As you'll hear in our conversation, I was drawn to Thomas's work because of where I find myself at this juncture in my life and the reckoning I've had with my own levels of self-criticism over the years. We talked about how we have both felt a softening of this in our own lives, and we discussed how and why perfectionism is growing among young people and teenagers. Thomas explains the trap of perfection and why it's ultimately a form of self-sabotage. And he shares the steps that we can take to break free from the cycle and into being more radically and wholly ourselves. Let's get to Thomas Curran. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. I'm in Canada at the moment. I'm going back to London in a couple of weeks, but for the moment, I'm I'm enjoying a bit of downtime and just talking to people about perfectionism, which is great. Yeah, really great. So you're also a professor at the London School of Economics. They, there's psychology in the London School of Economics. I know. Can you believe it? Interesting. What is the psychology of economics? Well, kind of like behavior science. Why do people make decisions? Are human beings rational? Yeah, <laughs> va- values, preferences, <laughs> marketing, psychology, all that sort of stuff. What's your conclusion there if human beings are rational? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't be more irrational if we tried, I don't think. But that's fine because that's what makes us human beings. So there's something quite enlivening about that. Although it does drive economists mad. <laughs> When I came across your book, I was so struck by the title and it resonated 
so much and I had so much curiosity around your work and your research on the subject of perfectionism. The book is called The Perfection Trap, which I think perfectly encapsulates where I find myself at this juncture in my life. And I think sort of reckoning with where it stems from, what it is, why so many of us have it, why it's sort of like the acceptable flaw when someone asks you, you know, tell us about your your downsides. It's it's like, oh, I work too much, or I'm I'm a perfectionist, or I'm I'm a recovering perfectionist. So I guess I'd sort of like to frame the conversation by asking you how you got down this particular academic funnel. What was it that drew you to this subject and how did you start to research it? Yeah, I mean, I'm a perfectionistic person for sure. And I think from an early age, I was definitely an anxious kid. So I would find it difficult to perform in really challenging situations. I had a lot of natural talent, I suppose, and I was good at sports and in school. But when it came to like high pressure situations, I always tended to struggle. And I don't think I, obviously when you're young, you don't connect the dots, but as I got older and a lot of other pressures came into my life, things like, you know, academic pressures or pressures to look a certain way, behave a certain way, pressures to uh, have a relationship or to succeed in work and all these other societal pressures that were kind of bombarded with really started to have an impact, kind of interact, I suppose, with that underlying anxiety and push me into doing things that weren't very comfortable, like working really hard trying to perfect myself, manage impressions and all that sort of stuff. And over time, that really culminated in some quite significant mental health problems, which led me to therapy. And through that process, I was, drawn, I was brought to the awareness that rather than helping me, so I thought the perfectionism was holding me up. It was the one thing keeping me going. It was the thing that was making me bulletproof. Rather than actually doing those things, it was actually creating the problems. <laughs> and it was at the root of the difficulties. And that's really where my, I guess, motivation sparked to, to understand this, this trait more because we actually don't know a great deal about it, particularly at a societal level. Like what's going on? Why do so many people feel these pressures and why is perfectionism so pervasive? So I did the first study to look at how perfectionism is changing over time. We're finding that it's on the rise, which is super interesting, but also a little bit worrying. And, and probably not in. surprising, right? Given social media's impact on culture, et cetera. Yeah, I definitely think social media is having a big, big impact on this. There's no doubt about that. There are other pressures, of course, like in schools and workplace and all that sort of stuff, but definitely social media is, is having an impact. Are perfectionism and anxiety kind of paired in your mind? Yes, there's a lot of research to suggest that perfectionism is very strongly correlated with anxiety and, and ruminative anxiety. The worries, worries about how we're looking, appearing and performing in comparison to others, but also in the eyes of other people. We're petrified of doing things wrong, for instance, or failing or slipping up because in our minds, we feel like people are watching and they're waiting and they're going to let us know. So perfection is really about concealing, hiding. It's about trying to curate for ourselves and other people this perfect life and lifestyle that we want other people to see, which is fine until things start to go wrong, until cracks start to appear. And when those situations come into our lives, when we do find ourselves in challenging situations, perfectionist people really struggle because essentially they go in on themselves, they're very self-critical and they tell themselves all the time that they're not good enough. And that's really problematic from a psychological perspective. Mm. So the sort of seed of perfectionism, is it coming from 
growing up in a household with a parent of a certain type? Like what are the origin stories? So perfectionism is about 30 to 40% genetic. Really? Yeah, it's very strong, but that's very consistent across most personality characteristics. In fact, a lot of other personality characteristics like neuroticism, ridiculousness, conscientiousness, agreeableness, and all the rest of it are about 50% inherited. So it's really strong, like really, really strong genetic component. But we also have to bear in mind that that leaves a lot for the environment to explain too. So, you know, 30 to 40% genetic, but that still leaves at least 60% for the environment to explain. And when we're talking about environmental factors, yep, you can talk about early life experiences, parenting, conditionally regarding parenting, something we zoom in on when we're thinking about perfectionism, that's parenting where, you know, when you've done something well, you're given a lot of praise and approval, but when you haven't quite succeeded, that praise or approval is withheld uh, or subtly deferred on the condition that young people keep doing more, keep trying but harder, keep working to do better. That's problematic because what that teaches young people is that they're they're only really worth something when they've succeeded and that when they haven't quite met that benchmark that there must be something wrong or that they they need to continually work and do more to correct those mistakes. And of course, that makes us very failure averse. It makes us worried about making mistakes and slipping up, which are very highly perfectionistic tendencies. Uh, but it's not just a uh, conditional regard. Parents can also project their own perfectionism onto young people too. So, you know, if you have perfectionistic parents, young people see that, they're very impressionable creatures and, and they will, of course, mimic and uh, take on those uh, tendencies themselves. Anxious forms of rearing as well, where, you, where you're hypersensitive about or worried about, man- you know, managing impressions or not slipping up. Again, young people will... We'll see this, and they'll also they'll also see that as um, ways in which they should um, behave too. So there's all sorts of parenting uh, styles and practices that can enter into perfectionism. But I must emphasise that it's not just about parents, and in fact, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this is a broader problem than just those early life experiences, because modern society these days just radiates perfection everywhere you look, perfectionistic ideals and fantasies just bombarding us through social media, as we talked about, and other areas, advertising, movie theatres, and all the rest of it, and that can also impact on, on our sense of need to be perfect. Right, and I would think too, even as you say, there is a genetic component, but we are currently swimming in this culture of, you know, highly presentational perfection, sort of, you know, unnatural ideals. I mean, I grew up obviously in an era without social media and all of that. And I, I definitely think I had those tendencies anyway, but I feel like they sort of kicked in later in life. Like I don't think of myself as a perfectionistic kid at all. I was kind of much more easygoing and accepting. And so I'm not sure exactly what happened along the way, but I feel like it was more in my twenties and late twenties when I started to get infected with it and then really, really hung on for a good, you know, couple decades there. I'm not sure if it matters like so much, even why I'm a perfectionist, but the, the patterns that it's driven me to are quite punishing. Can I ask you what that perfectionism looks like in your own life? It's changed over time. I would say, you know, in my 30s, I was trying to hold everything together and I had a, a real focus on keeping myself physically strong, being able to do multiple things at one time. I sort of had this complex around like, I can bear what other people can't bear. That's how my perfectionism showed up. Like, 
loaded on me, whether it's like emotional trauma or, you know, trying to do two careers at the same time or raising kids by myself. It was like that, that to me, it was most pronounced in that phase. Like that I, I wanted to be able to do things that nobody else could white knuckle through. And it became really important to my identity and it was incredibly harmful. Mm. Yeah, it's it, it it is it's a it's quite a punishing way to uh, to go through like trying to push through all times and all causes and all situations. Sometimes it's really healthy to slow down, but perfectionism doesn't give us a permission to do that. Yeah. It it continually forces us to work through challenge and setback and strife when actually what we really need to do is slow down, seek help and and re- recuperate, I suppose, allow ourselves to do that. And and that's actually one of the most difficult things about perfectionism. It it just it just doesn't allow us to do that. And are all high achieving people, do they have this perfectionist streak? I would say a, a good proportion, yes. We don't actually have any like hard data on that, so it's really hard to say. But I would caution that it doesn't necessarily mean that perfectionism is necessary for success. Right. I think what we see is the tip of the iceberg in the in the extremely high 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 performance. People have made it to the very very top. Of course, we want to learn from those experiences, and we can learn a lot from their experiences. But sometimes they can mislead us a little bit into believing that it was the perfectionism got there when it was probably they got there despite their perfectionism, not not because of it. And we know that because a lot of data suggests that there's a very weak relationship to perfectionism and performance. Actually, in fact, there is no relationship between those two things. So yes, it is true that a lot of perfectionistic people are really high performers, but that doesn't mean perfectionism is why they got there. Right. Okay. So there's a correlation there, but there's not a causation. Yeah. So there's two reasons why we don't necessarily see a high correlation with perfectionism and success. The first is that they work really, really hard but it's unsustainably hard. And you tend to find perfectionism is closely into things like burnout, just a kind of cynicism, devaluation and reduced accomplishment in the workplace or whatever it is we might be doing. But there's a second more interesting reason why perfectionistic people find it really difficult to find lasting success. And that's because they're world-class self-sabotages. And what I mean by that is that they will avoid or need to avoid failure to such an extent that they'll sabotage the chances of success to do that. Mm. Uh, because avoiding failure is way, way more important than a feeling like uh, uh, we've been successful. And we know this because we've done a lot of lab-based research. And I'll, t- I'll tell you quickly about one study. We've got people in the lab and we told them to do a cycling task, right? These are young, young athletes. And we said, you should comfortably meet a certain distance in a certain amount of time. That should be comfortable for you. So go away and do it. So they got on the bike and they cycled really, really hard to meet this uh, goal. And then at the end, we told them that sadly you failed. You didn't quite meet the goal, but it's okay. You can try again. And then the non-perfectionistic people, well, on that second attempt, they put in just as much effort, if not a little bit more. But the perfectionistic people did something really interesting. Their effort fell off a cliff on that second attempt because in their minds, you can't fail at something that you didn't try. And so what they're doing is they're preserving themselves. They're wanting to avoid that shame, embarrassment, guilt that they felt the first time by just taking themselves away from the situation. 
Mm. And it's not just avoidance that we see, by the way, it's also things like procrastination, which are wrapped up in the same psychology where something is so tough, so difficult, so challenging that we just want to do anything we can to avoid feeling those really difficult emotions so that we just avoid them and remove ourselves. Mm. But we're only damaged, of course, by the passage of time. And so that also is not conducive to performance either. So perfectionists work unsustainably hard. They burn out. But they also self-sabotage, procrastination, avoidance, which is not in, in any way conducive to success. So that's why perfection has a weak relation to performance. That's super fascinating. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. So what are the other, for lack of a better word, what are the other symptoms of it, right? So you said they work really hard, but they burn out they're self-sabotagers. If someone's trying to diagnose whether they're a perfectionist or not, what are the other symptoms, quote unquote? Well, think about a time where you've been successful. It's a good good starting point. Now, what was your first emotion? Was it relief that you didn't screw up? Well, that's probably an indication that you might have a little bit of perfectionism. Because really, it, perfectionism is the thief of satisfaction, is the thief of joy. Essentially, what it means is we can't derive any lasting satisfaction for some, from success because the better we do, the better we feel like we're expected to do, both ourselves and other people. So we always set a new floor for ourselves that we can never regress from. And it's in t- so exhausting to keep running on that treadmill. That That's the most debilitating thing I think about perfection. It, it kind of exposes our dreams as nothing more than dead ends. <laughs> Because the next, you know, we make it. It's like chasing the horizon. The closer you get, the further it moves. Like that is what perfectionism is, and it doesn't allow us to just savor and in, and and be content in the moment of our accomplishments and being able to reflect on those accomplishments and find a lasting sense of joy and satisfaction from having made it a certain way. Because it's, we've got to keep doing more. We've got to keep having more. So that's, I I think that's the biggest one. There's also a very harshly self-critical component of perfectionism that I think we also, we also have to be attentive to because perfectionistic people can be very self-critical, particularly when things haven't gone well, very hard on, on themselves. And that's, by the way, that's one of the reasons why it can be really problematic in, in terms of our mental health. But yeah, if you are worried about a failure, if you are highly self-critical and you, and you find it hard to derive lasting satisfaction from success, those are, those are very key signatures of perfectionism. Are you looking at me? <laughs> i i you know what like i when i was going through this research it was like yep 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 that's me that's me that's me like this was very much me searching for respect to me. i mean a lot of people feel these things yeah it's it's super interesting you know to to read through a book because when you're a perfectionist you feel isolated in it you know it's not something that people really talk about in terms of you know 
I don't know what I'm being driven by and, and I can never satisfy myself. Like it's not really dinner party fodder. So I think it, it was really interesting for me to have it articulated in these ways, because also it's become this catch-all, this sort of like trite, like, oh, I'm a perfectionist. It just means, you know, I have OCD in this particular way, but it's okay. It's like culturally acceptable. And actually it's, it's very damaging. Mm. Well, it is. And I'll, I'll, I'll ask you a question in your world. Do you think that perfectionism is something that you've seen grow? Do you think it's something that's very widespread right now where you are? I'll start with the cohort of people that I'm like with a lot in my life in a non-professional way. And that's teenage girls. My daughter's 19. My son is 17. All his friends, his female friends, my daughter's friends, my stepdaughter. It's so startling to me the standards that these girls are holding themselves to. And luckily, I wouldn't say it indexes extremely heavily into physical looks. It's more, what am I getting done? What is the quality of my work? Am I impressive? How am I showing up in the room? How much responsibility can I bear? It's really extraordinary to me to see how these cohort of girls are like hyper, hyper capable in a way that I'm like, is this okay? Like, aren't they supposed to be, you know, 17 and kind of fucking around? I mean, I was not like that when I was 17, but I observe that in such an incredible way. And then also in my peer group, women who are, you know, probably my best friends are probably like 45 to 50. I see a kind of easing of it starting to happen now where we're all a little bit like, this is fruitless. Like, what are we driving towards? You know, my friend Glennon Doyle, who has a great podcast, she I've referenced this a lot. It really stuck with me. At the beginning of the year, she discovered she had anorexia, but she was talking about how she had this unbelievable amount of discipline, which I think is just runs right in parallel with with perfectionism, right? You're so Mm. disciplined because you're driving towards achieving something so hard. And then she kind of stopped and asked herself, but then what am I a disciple of? And That to me is such an interesting question. Like I want to be the disciple of something that I contemplate and ruminate on as opposed to like whatever my wiring is, whatever the genetic pieces, whatever the culture has told me. And then whatever I've reinforced by brutally telling myself over and over again that I'm not good enough, that at the end of the day, like I'm not enough, I'm not enough. I can't, you know, I can't get there. So I'm on the one hand feeling positive about the fact that these 50 year ish old women are like, forget it. Like, who am I? I want to like myself. Like it's good enough, you know, but, but also as concerned about these teenage girls, I see, I mean, it's striking. Yeah. It's so interesting that you make that distinction because I am concerned actually about the world that young people have to come of age in these days with social media and the pressures there. 
I'm sure there is a lot of pressure at school too to continue to excel because they're standardized, tested all the time, yeah. which way more than we we were. And I certainly was. And they, they're so concerned about how they're doing and, and whether they're doing enough. And, and even objectively high grades are not enough because they, they feel like they should be doing better. They should be doing more because suddenly now they're surrounded by elite achievers and it's, it's, it's all a pressure cooker. It's so much of a pressure and we're seeing that in the data. We're seeing that exactly that in the data that, that young people are really struggling with with a lot of these pressures and they're internalizing them as pressure to be perfect. But what's really interesting is it's social pressures. So we have three dimensions of perfectionism, self, which it comes from within, other, which is projected outwards onto other people, and social, which uh, is perceived to come from the outside world. And young people are telling us that it's those social pressures to be perfect, mm-hmm. which they're feeling in, in, in greater regularity and it's on an exponential curve right now. So this is going up really quickly and it will continue to go up really quickly into the future. So yeah, young young people are, have got a difficult uh, world to navigate right right now. And, and I think it's up to us as parents and those in, who work with young people, teachers, ed- educators, to really work hard to push back against that culture because i think it's so important that young people know it's okay that just you know existing being living breathing it means you're enough that's all that's all that matters that makes you enough and that you don't have to prove yourself all the time you don't have to demonstrate to other people that you're worth something all the time that you know it's it's about joy it's about purpose it's about trying to find meaning in life to flourish like a flower <laughs> you know and flowers don't compete with each other by the way they, they grow in their own special ways and that's the most important thing the message i think that young people need need to hear right now that you know they, if they keep chasing this perfect idea of it's going it, to, you know, this is impossible and they have to find their own ways in life. So, so yeah, it's really interesting to make that distinction because we see that in the data. Mm. I wonder for those of us raising these teenagers who are being bombarded all the time by these ideals, it's so the water that we're all swimming in. And I don't know the degree to which we're even aware of our unconscious biases towards achieving and capability and perfection and all of that. So what is the antidote to that with with a teenager? Because also they don't listen to very much that we say anyway. So does it become about us trying to model stuff or are there practical things that we can do to help kids orient towards self-valuing instead of the perfectionistic tendencies? Yeah. And at first, this is a really important question. I'd like to first preface it with with a clear statement that it's not easy uh, to be a parent, particularly in the modern world. And and there are a lot of pressures, very real pressures, by the way, out there to to succeed because life is becoming a bit harder for young people. It's harder to get into the best universities. It's harder to get into the elite professions. And the elite professions are the only professions right now where wages are increasing. Like everywhere else, right. it's becoming a lot, lot tougher for young people. So of course, look, those pressures are real, they're live, and it's understandable that parents will feel them and want their kids to do well. That's the first thing to say. But you can have high expectations, you can have high goals, but you can do so in a warm and caring environment that provides love and support unconditionally. And, and what does that mean? That means that no matter how well your offspring do, if they come home and they've got an A grade, amazing celebrate that hug them tell them that's an incredible achievement well done but if they come and they don't get the grade that they wanted and they're upset which they will be tell them it's so 
tell them the same things, exactly the same things. Be unconditional in that love and affection that you showed them. Tell them that it's just one test out of many, many hundreds of tests that they're going to get. It's not an indictment on them. It doesn't, it doesn't say anything about how much they're worth or how much they matter or how much they're loved or approved of by their parents or their teachers. This is just one uh, stepping stone in a, in, a, in, a, in a path that's going to take you in the direction that you want to take. And I think that's the most important thing, unconditional love and approval. No matter how, no matter what's happening in young people's lives, that's so so crucial. They need that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, you know, like you mentioned, try to be to lead by example to, you know, teach young people that failure is humanizing. It's not humiliating. You know, so whenever you fail, share that with with your kids. <laughs> tell them you had a bad day. Like tell them you screwed up. Share share that information with them and 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 teach them the joy of that, the very humanizing joy of being a fallible human being. And sometimes things don't work out the way we planned. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Mm-hmm. There's always next time. So those are the things I would bear in mind when thinking about parenting practices and all the rest of it. But I would just say it's tough. It's tough. And you're doing such a great job. <laughs> well, that remains to be seen. so you touched on this but these three types of perfectionism that you studied the self-oriented the socially prescribed and the other oriented how did you land on these three segments so to answer that decades of work that hasn't hasn't been done by by me it's been done by two clinicians called paul hewitt and gordon flat and they just asked perfectionistic people, you know, what does perfectionism look like to you? What are the thought processes? What are the behaviors? Uh, what are the emotions that you feel? And across hundreds of interactions, they arrived at these three elements because they 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 saw that perfection wasn't just a personal characteristic that, oh, I need to be perfect and nothing but perfect. But it also contains all sorts of social elements around everybody expects me to be perfect. And that's why I need to be perfect. But also my perfectionistic standards are what I expect other people to also hold themselves to. And so these kind of three really core elements came what sort of generated organically through just interacting with perfectionistic people. And that's where they come from. And in society, does everybody have some degree of each one of these aspects? Yes. So it's useful to think of perfectionism as a spectrum rather than a kind of, I am or I'm not a perfectionistic person Mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. But the main one is, to say you're a perfectionist and you're not a perfectionist means it's quite fixed, right? And that suggests that there isn't a process that we can we can go about changing those tendencies. Whereas if you think about perfectionism as a spectrum, what we can begin to see is that some people will be high, some people will be low, some people will be more or less in the middle, and that spectrum can move. And that's also the most curious thing about perfectionism because everyone will score somewhere along the spectrum of self, social, and other-oriented perfectionism. Some will be high on self, some will be low on social, some will be in the middle of other, and then all sorts of different combinations. And so no one perfectionistic person looks like another. And that's also the really fascinating thing about perfectionism. So it's really useful to think about it as a spectrum. But there's criticism at the heart of each one of these, right? Because in self-oriented perfectionism, it's like that negative voice in your head criticizing yourself. The socially is that your friends or the world at large is going to be critical. And the other is that you are critical of other people for not living up to standards. 
Absolutely. That self-criticism is the root of these three. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense if you think about it, because if you're putting yourself through high self-criticism when you haven't achieved excessively high goals, and it's only fair that other people are going <laughs> to are gonna be expected to go through that too, right? That's only fair. So as much as like I, wish, I expect me to be perfect and then critical of myself, I'm going to be critical of you if you're not perfect mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. But there's also that social end, because, because we criticize ourselves for not being perfect, we then feel that everybody else is doing that too, that, that, you know, we're no different to those around us. And as a consequence, it isn't just that I expect you to be perfect or I expect myself to be perfect, but everyone else expects to be perfect too, because they're waiting to pounce with judgment and criticism when I haven't uh, met those high expectations. So absolutely right. It's that, it's that critical response to imperfection that really drives these three elements. So how is that genetic? That feels so environmental to me. Like, being self-critical because it feels like you're embodying a voice, right? It's like a personification of, of a voice. So how can that be genetic? Perfectionism, like, like an other, like a, a, a bit akin to neuroticism, a kind of worry and anxiety about how, we, how we're doing, how we're forming, how we're looking. And that part of perfectionism is certainly genetic in the, in the sense that there's a kind of ruminative orientation that, Unfortunately, we're just born with, and we tend to be a, a bit of a worry water, I suppose you could say, for want of a better right. phrase, as we go through life. But the self-critical element of perfectionism, this idea that we're never enough, we're not enough as we are, in my mind, is very much environmental. That part is certainly learned out, outside in wider culture, in what we're told about how satisfied we should be with our existing life circumstances, how we're told all the time that there's something more that we could be, that we could have, that we could do to never stop, to keep chasing and never necessarily feel contented because if we did feel contented, that would be a massive problem for our economy as it's organized right now because if we, right. stop if we stop consuming and everybody was happy with a good enough standard of life, then, you know, we're going to soon find that businesses are going to close, jobs are going to be lost, healthcare, education, all these things we won't be able to afford anymore. And and the whole thing come, comes crashing down. We know what happens in a recession. So there is a sense that this is systemic, that there is a constant need for us to continually improve ourselves because that's how we improve our economy. And I think that's where these feelings are not enough and never enough. And this feeling is a deficit and lack and worry and self-criticism. I think that's that's where they're coming from and why it is that we're seeing a lot of that these days as young people are growing up into an, a, a really risk economy with social media at the heart of it. As much as we can talk about this at an individual level, and we should, there is also a, there is also a really important message in my book that this this is not your fault. The, the way you feel and and these issues that you're struggling with and perhaps feel, find it really hard to snap out of have a broader context. And actually they're logical and rational responses to almost relentless social conditions going on around you yeah. that telling yeah. you you're not enough, there's always something more. There's actually something incredibly comforting about, about that, knowing that there is a there is a bigger picture here and that, that none of this is, is anything that's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. And that actually you're living in a society that's that's pushing you in this direction. Mm -hmm. And if you can if you can wrap your head around that, then you can really start on a journey of what we might call rehabilitation from perfectionism from a much more informed place. And you can begin to see everywhere and all around you that these things are designed to make you feel like that. And you can choose to reject them. You can choose to ignore them. 
and you can choose a, a different direction instead one that's predicated on finding meaning and purpose and living inside the joy that is our families and children and communities and not not having to consume and not having to work so hard all the time and i think that's a really really important message for for people to hear yeah absolutely and that also when you know maybe for me right now for example i feel like i'm straddling those two things right i'm sort of trying to unhook from these really strongly held ideas that I need to be X, Y, and Z in order to be acceptable or lovable, et cetera, and move more wholly into this idea that's really sort of like came with an upgrade that happened when I turned 50, which is just like, no, the the answer is to be wholly yourself, be radically yourself, come what may. Mm. And define for yourself what those benchmarks are, those attributes, not not have them be imposed on you from anywhere else. And I think when we ask ourselves those questions, we become much more embodied with the idea that we are okay as we are. As you say, when we lean into those relationships we have with the people we love, I mean, I'll speak for myself anyway, when I'm operating from that embodied place of being myself. Like I do feel whole, but it's when I click back into like the work mentality, that's when I start to regress back into the more perfectionist kind of thinking, you know, especially because it's so easy for us to look around and aggregate data around what everybody else is doing and what best practice looks like and what a best in class metric for this is. And so we start driving towards that. It's just very easy to get tripped back up into that, at least for me anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Master clinician Karen Horney once said that there is nothing more joyous than being all of ourselves with all of our feelings and saying and doing all that is mine. And there is nothing more uncomfortable than trying to be somebody else, somebody perfect. And, and that's, that, you know, that's quite profound. She was, she was a clinician in the fifties and sixties and saw thousands and thousands and thousands of patients. And and she came to the conclusion that really the core root of neurosis in her day was what's called an alienation from ourselves. We're trying, mm-hmm. we, we don't, we're not in contact or contact of ourselves, trying to reach an impossible ideal that makes us feel very tense and that creates a lot of inner conflict. And so what, what you've said there is extremely profound because that is so, so important. Trying to pretend, go about in managing impressions, uh, working in the service of, of an idealized image is, is, is really uncomfortable and reconnecting ourselves is, should be, in, in my opinion, the, the focal point of recovery from perfectionism. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Are there cultures where you see this more predominantly than other cultures? Are there cultures that are where people feel 
more at ease being who they are and kind of in the present or is this across all industrialized like how does how does that look well of course all all roads lead lead to zen buddhism (laughs) (laughs) but you know what like it's so true i know it's a cliche but it is so true that if you if you can connect with the with the present moment, if you can be grounded and live each day as it comes, it's so much of a more contented and happier place to be. And by the way, I know there's a very privileged thing to say. I grew up in a, in a very poor town, and I know that letting things happen can be the difference between you know making a rent payment or losing a job, or whatever. I understand these things, and it's really important to bear that in mind. But nevertheless, it's so 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 important to try to be grounded and live in the moment. And, and a lot of cultures are able to do that way better than others. And I think yeah, Western culture is particularly difficult in that respect because the imperative is to continually, continually drive economic activity forward, which means that we constantly have to pursue goals, ideals that are not ours, that are somewhere in the distance. Mm-hmm. This, you, know, you keep going, keep moving, keep doing, be somebody else, somebody else all the time. There's a, there's a material product for every hole in your life and that has to be constantly plugged all the time. There's never an end to it. And so I think those sort of cultures really lend themselves to that, that idea of self-alienation way more than certain others. And that's why I, I strongly believe that, yes, this is a genetic, um, but there is also a strong cultural uh, mm-hmm. element to it. And and it's a very key feature, I think, of Western culture in particular. Mm. So does either gender or race play into this at all? So we don't find much difference in gender in terms of mean levels, but certainly it would argue that there's a lot more pressure on girls and young women to women generate to to look and behave a certain way. There's no doubt about that. And in fact, actually, I mentioned Karen Horney because her insights came from clinical interactions with women in patriarchal culture, and she observed that they had to be somebody else somebody perfect all the time they had to bend themselves to the whim of that culture in order to conform and it was that conformity that was creating the conflict that was creating the perfectionism that was creating the psychological difficulties so absolutely i don't think it's any surprise that the in- insights around perfection came out of observations of patriarchal culture and its impact on women no doubt about that when we're talking about ethnic background and minorities well Yes, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's a lot harder for people with ethnic backgrounds to make make their way in modern society. And so that need to overcompensate, to overcome structural hurdles and barriers, prejudice threats and stereotype threats and all the rest of it that they encounter mean that they have to work so much harder and do so much more just to stay at the same level. Well, of course, that's exhausting. That puts a lot of pressure on uh, those individuals to do more and be more and work harder. And I don't think there's, I think there's a lot of literature now coming out about, you know, having to overcome as they overwork just to be on this at the same place as other people, which is having a massive impact on things like mental health and perfectionism. So I think gender uh, and race do play an an important role in this. Mm. And what is the impact of, this way of thinking on our mental health there's many different ways that you can look at how perfectionism impacts mental health it's, it's what's called a transdiagnostic risk factor which means it doesn't just impact on one aspect of mental health, but it impacts on many aspects of mental ill health so things like anxiety depression uh, self-image concerns self-presentational concerns we see it correlate with self-harm depression low mood ruminative cognition all sorts of things all sorts of uh, clinical and non-clinical outcomes and the reason for that is because it's it's so encompassing and we talked about this earlier, but it pushes us to continue to keep going 
even when we need to stop. It's almost anti-resilient. It, mm. it makes us extremely fragile and vulnerable to every roadblock. Even a small bump in the road can really tilt us. And you see this a lot with, with perfectionism. They find it really difficult to cope with setbacks. And these mm. things happen to us all the time, by the way. You know, like heartbreak, grief, loss, global pandemic <laughs> comes out the blue. You know, things happen to us all the time, which which are going to create a lot of challenge and setback. And perfectionistic people find it really difficult to navigate those uh, setbacks because they want to try and control and perfect everything and all around them. And that's just so difficult. They don't seek help. They motor through. They don't allow themselves to rest. And over time, that, that builds anxiety. That builds a lot of depressed mood, low mood, exhaustion, fatigue. It's kind of listlessness that we see a lot in perfectionistic people. And, and that just compounds, right? It kind of builds and builds and builds until the dam breaks and and you start to experience some significant mental health problems. Pushing ourselves through pain is one of the reasons why perfectionists struggle. Another is this, this idea of self-defeat that we talked about, self-sabotage, and they, they start to be in a cycle of low success, which makes them feel worse because obviously success is so important for their mental uh, state. So if they fail, then they experience a lot of anxiety, low, their self-esteem plummets, so then they overcompensate. And that leads to more mm. failure, which then, which then you can get you start to see this negative spiral start to uh, occur among perfectionistic people. So its interaction with success and failure is also important in this context. But you know, just in brief, it's important to remember that perfectionism has huge impacts on our on our mental health through various different pathways. And it's important we, we actually recognize the extent of it. Because I think we know, like we talk about perfectionism as like, we know it has this baggage, but I don't know if we 100% understand the extent of that baggage, which can be really quite profound. So how do we begin to rewire ourselves from this? You started by saying you were a victim of this yourself. Do you have a, a practice? How How can people kind of move out of that cycle that you're just referring to? Yeah, it's a journey. That's the first thing to say. And there's no like quick fix or hack that I can give you that will instantly mean you can overcome perfectionism tomorrow. It's repeated exposure to setbacks, failure, challenge that I think really help. And so putting ourselves out there is really important. Brené mm. Brown talks, talks about vulnerability. I think that's crucial. I, mm. I think opening ourselves up to the world, even if you're not a world champion at it, do it anyway particularly if it brings you purpose and joy like you, you know i'm a really terrible singer for instance but i love playing guitar so my perfectionism held me back now i just go out and do it because i i love doing it and that's that's more important than hiding this in this perfect person that i'm this imperfect person i'm trying to disguise so put yourself out there that and, and that can't just be in your social life your leisure life can be in your work too you know if you don't feel you're a very good presenter Put your hand up to do a presentation. What I'm saying here is go through those emotions and that discomfort because it's going to feel uncomfortable doing things that are outside of that comfort zone. But that would that discomfort will teach you something really important about the perfect person that you're trying to emulate. And mm -hmm. is that perfect person really worth living in fear for? Like, is it really worth living in fear that's stopping me doing these things, moving forward, growing, developing? And you'll find that as you put yourself out there as you encounter these challenges as you go through the discomfort you'll realize actually that's not worth living in fear that actually what's more important is that i'm doing things that as you mentioned that are true to me that i find purpose meaning and i want to learn and i want to grow so put yourself out there put your hand up to do uncomfortable things and just learn to sit with that discomfort it's not going to be easy at first but the more you do it the easier it, it will become 
what does the discomfort help us practice or what does it say to us? It tells us that for, at some level we're scared. There's a trepidation there and an apprehension about things that are unknown and that we're not quite sure how things are going to shake up. And in the, and in a perfectionist mind, of course, one of the hardest things to deal with is the possibility of failure that actually we might, particularly public failure, that we might expose a weakness in front of people. And what I'm saying when I'm saying sit with that discomfort is to try to reflect on it and ask ourselves, well, why is it that we feel these things? And, and what is, what is the worry? And the worry, of course, will be that we don't emulate this kind of perfect ideal that we hold in our mind's eye that we want to be. And I'm asking every, each and every one of us, and I do this to myself all the time, is is that person really, as I say, is it re- really worth this trepidation? Is it really worth that fear to live in mm-hmm. to, to live in the shadow of this perfect self? Somebody who, you know, somebody else, somebody perfect is not you. And so that's it can do that trepidation. If you know, yes, it can feel difficult and it can feel like we don't want to encounter it. But what I'm trying to say is that we can learn something incredibly important about ourselves through it. And so opening ourselves up and allowing those feelings in, I think, is vital. So that's what I mean by trying to sit with that discomfort and learn how to sit with it and see it as something that's really important rather than something we should be avoiding through avoidance or procrastination or whatever it might be. And that takes courage. But I do believe it's just vitally important to push push ourselves a little bit. And equally, at the same time, self-compassion. Because by doing so, you're going to encounter lots of moments where you are going to reveal a little chink in the armory every now and again. And you are going to encounter setbacks. And that's fine. These are very humanizing experiences. But don't go in on yourself. It's so, so important to be kind to yourself, to tell yourself, it's okay, you just screwed up. You just slipped up. Or things didn't pan out the way you hoped, and that's also okay. That just happens, and and that you you've achieved so much, you've come so far, and there's always next time. That's a much better internal dialogue than to go, "How could you be so stupid? What were you thinking?" Which is often <laughs> the the types of in a narrative or in a dialogue that I used to give myself all the time when I didn't think I'd done a very good talk or whatever. Avoid those kinds of things. And finally, I would say. One of the things perfectionistic people do a lot, I, I certainly count myself in this, is they they think in very black and white terms, like I must do this, I have to do that. And if I don't, it's going to be catastrophic. They catastrophize a lot. And so that's why, you know, this has to be done. It's very rigid. It's very inflexible ways of thinking. When those thoughts come into your mind, and you'll know you'll know because you'll be there'll be thoughts that put a lot of pressure on you to move forward. I would I would suggest writing them down. You know, mm-hmm. I must, I must submit this flawless presentation on X day, right? And ask yourself, like, how much you actually believe that? Like, actually believe that? And is it, a, is it a must or is it a would like to? Or is it would be good if it could? Mm-hmm. And start to organize and prioritize your life around things that are important and things that aren't quite so important. And ask yourself, what, what's the likely consequence if I don't do that too? Like, is it as catastrophic as I think it is? And again, this can really help to reframe those very rigid and irrational types of thoughts into more constructive and compassionate ways of thinking. So, you know, there are are other things that I I talk about in the book, but I think those are the three main practices Mm -hmm. that have helped me. For me, like the real light bulb moment of this conversation was around perfectionists also being self-sabotagers i had never like those seem totally mutually exclusive to me right like why would you ever 
self-sabotage if you're trying to do everything perfectly, but it makes, it makes so much sense. You, you talk about self-acceptance. Are the things that you do in your life that, that you think help in this respect? I have really tried to change the dialogue that I have about myself with myself, because I used to really quickly default to a place of extreme negative self-talk. And that has eased up, I would say over the last decade, like I've, I have made an effort to do that. And I think once I've healed that layer, what's come underneath is this deep sense that, you know, part of these patterns of behavior, they do kind of try to anesthetize me away from the feeling underneath, which is that again, like on some level, I am a failure or I can only be a failure And so I've constantly tried to prove to myself and other people that, well, I'm not because look at the empirical evidence is that I did X, Y, and Z, or like I raised a happy kid, or I'm building a successful company or whatever those things are. Like they Mm -hmm. all, you know, resisting that urge to make everything a data point to prove to myself that I'm not a failure and not all day, not every day, but there is this part of me that goes through life with this narrative. That's really what I'm trying to understand is like, how do I heal her? Like, how do I heal that part of me that drives so much of this behavior? And a lot of it is from just real life experience. So for instance, you work so hard, let's say, I mean, I worked so hard writing a book, but when you submit it, all you've done is cross the final T. And you don't, you can't look back at the bigger picture to see this massive thing that you've achieved, but because the last thing you did was simply dot the T, right? Cross the T. That's the last thing you did. So it doesn't feel like you deserve to have like a moment of relief, but it was such a small thing. And I guess that's the same, you know, if you finish a film and you just say the last line and the whole effort that's taken to produce that thing kind of evaporates because all you did is just say the last line and then you're done. And it, and that's, I think, one of the most difficult things about perfectionism is it is because it keeps us looking in the forward direction, like at what's next. Yeah. Then in the moment, it's really hard to appreciate that what we've achieved is something incredible. And yeah. that's good. that goes for all of us. Like every single one of us has done incredible things. And if all we're focused on is that final full stop, <laughs> then we're never going to appreciate the success. So the, the the challenge is to really try to reflect on the entire, the, you know, what we have done, what we have achieved, and be able to look backwards as well as forwards and find us a sense of satisfaction in that actually, you know, we've achieved great things and there's something to be proud and con- and almost sort of contented about that. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. This was such a great conversation. And the book is so good. It's an amazing piece of work. Oh, thank you, Gunnar. I really appreciate that. Thanks for tuning in to today's conversation with Thomas Curran. His book, The Perfection Trap, is out now. I hope you'll check it out. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.